you would please take your Bibles and turn to them to Joshua chapter 20. We are back in our sermon series on Joshua and going to take the rest of May to finish it up. And this summer we'll move into a sermon series through the, some of the Psalms. And so we're looking forward to that, but we want to finish up uh, our study in Joshua. If you need a Bible, there's some in the chairs in front of you, and we're on page 194 there. And I trust that everyone in the last few weeks went back and read all the land divisions in, in chapters 13 through 19. I know that was exciting for you. But here, we're, we're, we still got a little more administrative detail that's going on here in the promised land that we'll find here in chapter 20 with the cities of refuge that the Israelites were to set up in the promised land. This is God's holy word to us this morning. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hands because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not have hate in him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own home, and in his own home, in his own town, and to the town from which he fled. So they set up apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirthra Arba, that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the table land from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he has stood before the congregation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word to us this morning. Lord, the truth, the truth that is in Jesus, Lord, we pray you would lay it upon our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I recently have watched a historical series on TV called Victoria, based on the 19th century Queen of Great Britain. This is not an endorsement of that series. I just want to make a little historical illustration here. Uh, the way she became queen is very interesting. She inherited the throne at the age of 18 after her father's three elder brothers had all died. And there was no uh, surviving children of King George III. Upon her assumption to the crown, Victoria ruled over all of Great Britain, but her father's younger brother, her very unpopular uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, uh, 
he became king in Hanover, a territory of Great Britain. The king of Hanover was heir to the throne if Victoria died or if she did not have a child of her own. And of course, he secretly desired to be the king of Great Britain. When the duke became king of Hanover, he suspended the constitution of his city-state, saying that the constitution was illegitimate. And so while Victoria was pregnant with her first child, an insurrectionist actually tried to assassinate her. And when the would-be assassin was tried for high treason, he was found to be not guilty on the basis of insanity. The king of Hanover, seeing an opportunity to insert himself into the situation while noticing that the crown was vulnerable, he came to the queen to give her this advice. And this, I'm sure, is embellished by the, the TV series. He says, in my kingdom, the, the would-be accused would be executed in a very public manner for his treason. To which Victoria replied, in my reign, we will follow the rule of law. And then she chided her uncle, stating that she would be a better monarch because she had a firm stance on justice and the rule of law. This little historical reference serves as an illustration how important these cities of refuge were to the nation of Israel early on in their growth as a nation, as a country. And in God's infinite wisdom, he instructed Moses and Joshua to establish these cities of refuge so that if anyone was accused of someone's death by accident... They could flee there for refuge or for safety until the the matter could be settled by the rule of law. And these cities were to serve as as a safe haven. But they were also a reminder that without the rule of law, without justice, then the people would be free to execute anyone that they pleased without following due process or a, a system of justice that would, in fact, guarantee fairness and truth for all the people. Because what you don't want is a kingdom of God ordered by his statutes and his commandments. Is anyone acting like the king of Hanover? Willingly and freely executing anyone, anywhere, without due process. So these cities of refuge may at first reading think, why are we having a sermon on this? But they in fact teach us, as all of the book of Joshua does, about God who he is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these cities of refuge, I want us to study the attributes of God found in this chapter. So let's look at three of them. The first is the the justice of Yahweh God. The second is the mercy of Yahweh God. And the third is the refuge found in Jesus. First, the justice of Yahweh God found in the first few verses here of chapter 20. Just again, by way of reminder, chapters 13 through 19 of Joshua was the allotment of the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel. But as we get into chapters 20 and 21, there's still a few more administrative details to be covered when it comes to the final divisions. And one is appointing these cities of refuge, and then next chapter we'll see about the special provision made for the tribe of Levi. 
These cities of refuge in chapter 20 were important to establish justice in the land, the rule of law. In the case of justice in ancient Israel, the thought was that there would be times when someone would would accidentally or unintentionally kill someone by accident. An example of this is given in Deuteronomy chapter 19. You can go look there later. The example is given if someone is chopping wood, and they're chopping wood with their axe, and the axe head flies off and hits their neighbor in the head, accidentally killing their neighbor, that would not be intentional murder. That would be an an unfortunate accident. And so in this sense, this person uh, did not have the intent of murder in their heart at that time, and they would not necessarily deserve a murderer's punishment which would have likely have been execution. So let's say if it was my brother that, who died because of the axe head flying off, I might be mad and upset. I want to take revenge on the person swinging the axe. But that would not be justice, would it? That would, in fact, be vengeance rather than justice. Because this form of justice, this is not Yahweh God's idea of justice, to just go and willingly take revenge because you're upset. No, what Yahweh God wanted was these cities of refuge to be established, so in such cases, Yahweh God's rule of law would prevail and not man's vengeance. And so these cities of refuge were set up all throughout the promised land, and what's unique about the placement There's very distinct places set up for cities of refuge that you could go and look on an ancient map of Israel and see that these cities of refuge were accessible really from almost anywhere in the promised land, thereby showing that Yahweh God's justice was meant to be practical. It was meant to be accessible to anyone. The psalmist says, righteousness and justice or the foundation of your throne, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That is God's way. And so what we also find in this chapter is yet another way that the Bible values life. The, va- the, the Bible values the sanctity of human life. Yahweh God cares about his people and he cares about how they are justly treated. So when we speak, speak of the sanctity of human life, we must not just limit that to unborn babies. It must be all of life. All of life is sacred. And God cares about justice because he is a just and righteous God and he wants his people to display justice and righteousness as they are his people in his place under his rule. But these cities also would serve as a banishment to those who had to flee to these cities of refuge because those accused of such a crime would be away from their homes. They would be away from their families. They would be away from their routines, their jobs, as they remained in these cities of refuge. And so that leads to the second point about who Yahweh God is here. when We look at the mercy of Yahweh God. Because the only way that the accused could be released from confinement 
in one of these cities of refuge would be when the high priest had died. That is when those who fled to these cities could be released according to the scriptures. So what does that mean? What, what exactly is going on here? Well, as you can tell, uh, Joshua chapter 20 is actually making reference to some earlier instructions given in God's word. And so that's when we talked about Deuteronomy, but also in Numbers chapter 35 gives us a little more context of what's going on here about how uh, these, these prisoners, if you will, would be freed when the high priest dies. And so only the death of the high priest could offer the, offend, the offender release from his imprisonment and let him go home again. The only way that the offender could get to go back to his family, to go back to his life, to go back to his routines, is when this high priest would die. Why it was set up exactly this way, we don't know for sure, but one reason given by a lot of commentators is that this, in this way, atonement would be made for the manslaughter that was committed. Because we know that the scriptures teach that those who are put to death through murder intentionally, they too were to be executed, but this is not simply that, that easy. This is not that cut and dry. We're talking about accident, something happened unintentionally. So how, how would justice be reached for those who, who did such a thing? And so the only way would be when the high priest had died. And if this is the case, is this not a wonderful picture of our merciful, faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us in his death? Because only Jesus Christ's sacrificial death has set us free from the imprisonment of our sin. Only in his death can we find refuge and justice. And so the death of the high priest would serve as a substitute for the death of the killer. His life was the compensation for the offended. And so nothing further would be required. He would be released. The high priest's death would serve as atonement. Does that not sound familiar? Jesus is our great high priest. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, for, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he died this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ died once for all. His priesthood is forever because he lives forever. Another way we see the mercy of Yahweh God is in verse 8, where we read that this form of justice, those who could flee to these cities of refuge, also was extended to 
the sojourner. That is the Gentiles. That is those who were non-Jews, those who were outside of the covenant. They too could enjoy the benefits of these cities of refuge when in the case of accidental murder. And this again is to show us God's great mercy, is it not? His grace, his love is deep and wide and high. His mercy can extend even to the sojourner, even to the vilest, even to you and me. And this again is the teaching that the Apostle Paul picks up on in Ephesians chapter 2, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, our faithful and merciful high priest, he has brought near all those who are far off. His sacrifice and atonement, his blood that was shed, was for Jew and Gentile, for all who would trust in Christ by faith. Matthew Henry picks up on this this illustration that these cities of refuge pointing us to Jesus. He said, these cities were designed to typify the relief which the gospel provides for penitent sinners and their protection from the curse of the law and the wrath of God in our Lord Jesus to whom believers flee for refuge. It is to Jesus we flee for refuge. And that's the third point. Our refuge is found in Jesus. As we have seen, these cities of refuge served in a very particular way for the administration of justice in Yahweh God's land. But they also have a very deep theological meaning for us as they point us to Jesus. But even more, these cities point us to the reality that we are all doomed unless we have a refuge to where we could flee. Think about that. Think about for these people who were caught in these unfortunate situations, and if someone was killed just by accident, they would have nowhere to go if it weren't for these cities of refuge. But we too need a refuge. We need refuge. Why do we need refuge? Why do we need protection? The Bible gives us two reasons. We need a refuge, we need protection because of the holiness of God and the wickedness of our sin. We need protection from the holiness of God. God is holy and we are not. Do you remember when God told Moses that he could make any request of him and that God said he would grant it? And Moses asked to see God's glory. He said, I want to see your face. But God told Moses that no one can see my face and live. In other words, I am so holy. He is so three times holy that no one can stand in God's presence and live. But what did God do to accommodate Moses' request? He put him in the cleft of a rock and he shielded Moses and pass by allowing Moses to see his backside, seeing the Lord proclaiming himself to be holy and just and merciful and steadfast in love. Because again, no one can stand in the presence of an all-holy God and live. And the only refuge Moses had from the power of God's holiness, not melting him to death, was God's graciousness to shield him as he passed by. God is holy, 
and we are not. Additionally, we see that we are sinful, that our sin has separated us from a holy God and caused us to be dead in our sin, the Bible says. Furthermore, our sin must be punished, it must be dealt with because God is holy and just and sin cannot be ignored. All that to say is we need refuge from God. Our ultimate problem is with God. He is holy. We are sinful. Our need for refuge is because of our sin and God's holiness. Again, the writer of Hebrew puts it this way, Hebrews in chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he concludes this, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just like we are called to go and to get into our safe place, to get into our hiding place when there's a terrible storm coming. Where is our safe place when we realize that we are doomed in our sin and cannot stand before a holy God? Where can we go? The only place we can go, the only place we must go, is to Jesus. Jesus is our refuge. He is our stronghold. He is our rock. He's the rock of ages, cleft for me. The amazing love of God was displayed for us by Him doing what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus shielded us from the wrath of God. By dying in our place on the cross. And he paid for our sins in full by his sacrifice on the cross. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid for our sins. And he shielded us from his wrath. And so where will you run from God? Where could we possibly go? Where can you find refuge from your sin and condemnation? And Do you realize that the only way you can escape from being killed in your sins is to fly to Jesus? Fly to Jesus. He is our refuge. And so yet again, we uncover the great purposes of God in redemption by studying cities of refuge here in Joshua, here in the Old Testament. We find redemption, we find the grace, the love, the mercy of God. And this is why the Bible is so good and so helpful and so practical for us, because it, it always points us to Jesus, does it not? 
It always shows us that our refuge, that our hope, that our salvation is in Jesus. That great hymn says, Jesus, lover of my soul, other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. There is no other refuge. There is no other place to go but to Jesus. Samuel says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. There is no other refuge but Jesus. Go to him and find refuge. Let's pray. O Lord, we confess, other refuge have I none. There is nowhere to go, nowhere to hide from our sin and from your holiness. And Lord, in that great realization, Father, help us to realize that you have done what we could not do for ourselves. You are our refuge. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And so, Lord, help us every day, day by day, to fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus, our rock, our refuge, our fortress, our strong tower, our salvation. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.